The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. What do you need all this for anyway? You seem to already have plenty of technology. One can never have too much. The rules of acquisition say expand or die. Rules of acquisition? That's rule number 45. I've memorized all 173, including the most important one. A man is only worth the sum of his possessions. Back on my homeworld, that kind of thinking almost destroyed our civilization. You should have managed your businesses better. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, September 25th, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Welcome to the show today. It's on everyone's lips. It's the economic equivalent of 9-11, says George Bush in an address to the nation last night. And of course, if you're not aware of what I'm talking about, we're talking about the subprime banking crisis south of the border and how it might affect us. So uh, today we're going to be covering that whole issue for the whole show. We're going to be looking at different aspects of it um, at end the show with uh, where do we go from here? Should we not worry and be happy, you know, or... Um, just carry on, or what, what, what does the future really look like? I wish I had a crystal ball. I really can't tell you, but I have a number of things that might help you decide for yourself. We also want to look at the meaning of a free market, the possible specter of inflation, and we'll begin with, of course, an overview of the whole situation. You know, President Clinton used to say it's the economy, stupid, but maybe it's really the stupid economy. <laughs> we'll have to take a look at that. 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation, have any observations or or anything to, an insights to offer. Just write chrw at gmail.com is the email address if you want to contact us with your ideas, commentaries, or even suggestions of subjects for future shows. Now, of course, you've all heard about the subprime banking crisis south of the border. Companies that most of us have never heard of before are now hogging headlines around the world. I have to confess, when I first heard the names uh, Fanny and Freddie, I thought somebody was kidding. Like, what's that about, you know? Now, apparently, these two companies provide the largest source of U.S. home mortgage financing, but they don't lend money directly to home buyers, which is why it's called a subprime banking crisis. It's kind of like more wholesale than retail. But they buy mortgages from banks and other lenders on what they call a secondary market, which gives the banks more money to lend to new home buyers. They then bundle the loans they buy and resell them as mortgage-backed securities. Fannie was created in 1938 during the Great Depression, and Freddie was created in the 1970s, apparently to end Fannie's monopoly. Now, that was how the National Post on September 8 kind of summarized the background of those two companies. Though they are the largest, they are but two 
of the many finance companies caught in the current cash squeeze south of the border. And they didn't happen overnight any more than any significant event was precipitated by an event occurring on a single day. And I think that applies, the principle applies both to wars and to financial crises and arenas. Rescue Lifts Markets reads the headline on the September 9, 2008 uh, National Post. Fannie Freddie crash bailout reaction mixed reads the subheading. And U.S. taxpayers, get this, may be on the hook for up to U.S. $5.4 trillion. You're going to hear a lot of numbers bantered around over the show, and uh, it, which is the real number, we don't know. It's going to, I think it's a little lower than that, but still, that doesn't lessen the seriousness of it. George Bush, the U.S. president, said in an interview with Fox News Channel that he believes the rescue plan will stabilize the market, which is necessary at this point in time. I wouldn't call it a bailout, Mr. Bush added, according to a transcript of his interview. I'd call it a stabilization. A default on the massive amounts of debt held by Fannie and Freddie would have had huge ramifications because many investors around the globe, including central banks, hold big stakes in that debt. The near nationalization puts taxpayers on the hook for the entire U.S. $5.4 trillion that the two agencies own or guarantee. And uh, that's just those two agencies, folks. Well, you hear the rest. Even with the high price tag, the rescue may not be enough to stabilize the markets. And you can bet that's what they'll be arguing about tomorrow night when Bush uh, gets together with both Barack Obama and um, John McCain to, to see what they're going to do about this. Uh, they're, they're hoping for confidence to be restored. They're praying, said Alex Dravesky, the chief executive of Recovery Partners, a Toronto firm that buys distressed assets from financial institutions. Long-term mortgage rates fell in the U.S. on news of the rescue, but not everyone is set to benefit from the cheaper rates. This will give Fannie and Freddie the means to be more flexible and to write and process more loans, said Leonard Person, chief executive of Brooklyn-based real estate company Heaven Homes. And boy, that doesn't that sound like they're jumping from the frying pan into the fire. Yeah, give us some government money and we'll continue the process that got us right where we are. This is also great for anyone in the market to purchase a new home or investment property, he says. And again, what, to start the cycle all over again? Uh, but it does not help anyone currently facing foreclosure. Down the road, meanwhile, the need for a much bigger bailout could put huge pressure on the already struggling U.S. Co economy. Richard Beauvais, an analyst with Ladenburg Thalman, said the U.S. may have to bump up taxes to cover the bill. No kidding. Take the money from the folks who earned it and give it to those who screwed up and didn't. Then the government could be forced to borrow more money to stimulate the economy. That's a contradiction in terms, ladies and gentlemen, and that's one of the misunderstandings about economics you see right at the top that I think lead us, leads us into these cycles, which of course would lead to a hike in U.S. interest rates. There is no question but that this is a very sad day for the American financial system and the capitalist economy, Mr. Beauvais said in a research note. And uh, to which I reply, no, 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 no. The capitalist economy, not that. It's the mixed economy, please. How can anyone call an economy capitalist when the market mechanisms of capitalism have been regulated out of existence? Come on. Capitalism is always the excuse for government intervention. You just watch it. when they Every time they screw something up, they blame the free market and capitalism because, my goodness, the public doesn't want to go along with it. They don't want to have their money taken away from them and given to people that they didn't consent to give it to. Doesn't that make sense? 
But capitalism is always an excuse for government intervention, and that's because it's, of course, a synonym for reality, and reality generally clashes with government policy. Says the National Post on September 16, um, headline, Capitalist Temples Tumble, Wall Street in Crisis, by Teresa Tedesco, chief, chief business correspondent with the National Post. Quote, for the past year, the U.S. housing crisis and the ensuing credit squeeze has engulfed stock markets, creating panic among investor and depositors, and inevitably a run on several banks. As a result, Americans are losing homes they cannot afford, and the U.S. financial system is losing temples of capitalism it can no longer afford to prop up. Uh, here again, referring to the mixed temples, or the temples of the mixed economy as temples of capitalism. This is so dramatic because it's being driven by the U.S. housing market, which went crazy, explains Professor Alan White from the University of Toronto. And, of course, he doesn't say why the housing market went crazy in the first place, but we'll get to that later. It's the real economy stuff that's taking down the financial markets of Wall Street, and that doesn't usually happen. <laughs> so he's basically saying uh, reality doesn't play a role, especially when government backs everything you do, right? Then there's the heading, Why AIG Fell, by Zachary Carabell. And he's the president of River Twice Research, disappeared in the National Post September 19th. And actually, this is the article that got me steamed up and got me rolling on this whole subject. And uh, just four basic points he's made here, and I'll just get to them. Quote, the idea that there is this thing called the free market that governments tame or muck up with regulation is a fiction, uh, to which I respond wrong, so wrong. Uh, you know, this comment fails on epistemology and definition, but I'll be addressing that in detail later on in the show. Quote, but to continue, governments create the legal conditions for markets. Markets shape what governments can do or are willing to do. Regulation versus the free market is a false dichotomy. Good regulation can't prevent crisis, but bad regulations can cause them. The current meltdown isn't the result of too much regulation or too little. The root cause is bad regulation. Until we can have more rational, measured public discussion about what government and regulations can and should do vis-a-vis -vis financial markets, we are unlikely to break the cycle." End quote. Well, if there's no such thing as a free market, is there such a thing as an unfree market? I mean, that's the first question I always ask myself. And, uh, you know, obviously, there are both types of markets. But on what possible grounds can one decide whether a regulation is bad or good unless you have a standard of bad or good? And th this argument we just heard, it's a purely pragmatic and irrational argument that we hear so from so many in the business community. You know, good regulation can only be good by regulating in accordance with free market principles. Bad regulation can only be bad due to the violation of morality, which is necessary when governments initiate the use of force of law to rob Peter to pay Paul. And that's what you're going to be seeing south of the border, but it will be argued as a necessity. So obviously such writers, I don't know, don't seem to have any sense of right and wrong, but they've got a strong sense of survival, and if it means surviving at the expense of some other guy, they'll do it. Terence Corcoran writes on the September 9th, National Post, the end of America's bad mortgage dream. And I quote from his essay, quote, finally two of the greatest of American financial boondoggles are being put out of their ideological misery. In recent decades, the affectionately nicknamed U.S. mortgage lenders Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae had grown to represent everything that corporate and financial America is not supposed to be. The clash of ideas 
market supply of mortgage cash backed by government structure institution ends where it deserves to end. Federal home buying programs and subsidies launched by a succession of administrations from Carter to Bush promoted reckless home financing and buying. They were bloated socialist enterprises in a capitalist economy. Worse, these hybrid risk-taking public-private outfits took on trillions of dollars in mortgage-related liabilities and sold shares and debentures to willing buyers all over the world with a wink-wink, nudge-nudge promise that if the worst came to worst, the mighty U.S. Treasury with its unlimited ability to tax would provide a bailout. At least the bailout doesn't do anything for shareholders who are not entitled to government money. Holders of Freddie and Fannie debt and debentures may fare better. Fannie and Freddie provided subsidized mortgage services to a housing market that was already overloaded with government subsidies and programs. The two hybrid institutions, part government mandate and part shareholder owned, were a formula for failure, pushed and pulled by conflicting ideologies. Lawrence Summers, Treasury Secretary under Bill Clinton, put it well, quote, the result, he said, was to privatize profits and socialize losses. The Paulson bailout makes that clear, end quote. You know, there you have it, privatize profits and socialize losses. That is not capitalism in any way, shape, or form. It's not even socialism. It's fascism, which we've been talking about on the show a lot, otherwise known as the public-private partnership part, uh, plan of America. You know, you hear a lot of uh, things going on with that because government is proving itself to be more and more inept all the time, and that's why they have to partner with the private enterprise. Now, next clip coming up in this break, you're going to be hearing the late and great Milton Friedman from his Free to Choose series way back in 1980. Of course, that was a period when inflation was running, about to run rampant, and we just came out of a period, uh, saw 22% mortgage rates, uh, first mortgage rates, if you can believe such a thing, and um, of course, Milton Friedman is the center, has become the center of a lot of this debate uh, as it rolls on now, and I'm sure a lot of what he has had to say over the economies in the past will be used in the debates you will hear in the future. So here's a little bit of Milton Friedman when we come back on the other side. We'll continue with the specter of inflation. Inside the stock exchange, on October 29, 1929, the market collapsed. It came to be known as Black Thursday. The Wall Street crash was followed by the worst depression in American history. That depression has been blamed on the failure of capitalism. It was no such thing, but the myth lives on. Although these events happened almost 50 years ago, many of our policies today derive directly from them. Central bankers throughout the world, government officials everywhere, are afraid of a new Great Depression. They have therefore moved in the opposite direction. Instead of the problem of too little money, we are faced with the problem of too much money. The problems of inflation that plague us today trace directly from the problem of deflation that plagued us from 1929 to 1933. People came to believe that free market capitalism had failed. Something was needed to replace it. At Cambridge University in England, 
a new orthodoxy emerged in the 30s, one that has remained powerful to this day. It owes its influence to the brilliance of one man. John Maynard Keynes was unquestionably one of the greatest economists of all time. Like other economists of his generation, he found the Great Depression both a paradox and a challenge. It was a paradox because it seemed to contradict some of the fundamental principles that economists had come to take for granted. Keynes rose to the challenge by constructing a complex and sophisticated hypothesis which not only explained what had been going on, but also offered a way out, a way to end the Great Depression and to avoid similar episodes in the future. The core of his theory was that what happened to the quantity of money didn't matter. What really mattered was a particular category of spending, in economists' jargon, autonomous spending. What kind of spending is that? It might be investment by business enterprises in building factories and adding to the number of machines and adding to inventories. It might be spending by individuals to build houses. Or, most important of all, it might be deficit spending by government. If private spending on investment, on house building, was not enough to maintain full employment, then government could always step in and spend enough to make up the difference. The theory of pump priming was born. The theory was a godsend to politicians that had been, who had been grasping at any expedient. After all, throughout the ages, politicians have been only too willing to spend money, provided they didn't have to tax their citizens to pay for it. And here along came a scientific theory offered under the most responsible of auspices that justified what they had been wanting to do all along. Is it any wonder that government spending has exploded ever since? Or that deficit spending, even without the excuse of war, and on a large scale, has become the order of the day? There's a bit of history of John Maynard Keynes, and uh, there was a headline in the paper in the National Post, editorial rather, called There's Not a Case for a New Keynesian Era, he writes on September 17th. Welcome back to the show. It's Just Right with Bob Metz on CHRW 94.9 FM, 519-661-3600, the number to call if you have any comments or questions. Is this a failure of business or of government, asks Peter Foster. In a piece in the Globe and Mail, Lord Roberts Gidelsky, author of a voluminous biography of John Maynard Keynes, argues that the Great Depression unleashed a 40-year Keynesian wave of liberalism. That wave came crashing in the 1970s on the shoals of inflation to be followed by 30 years of free market policies of the type recommended by Milton Friedman. Now, according to Lord Skidelsky, Professor Friedman's new classical economics has come unstuck, so we are apparently headed back to liberalism. Laissez-faire capitalism has been found wanting, as if we ever had that, eh? So it's back to a system that was found more wanting. <laughs> but what the hades? Economics is all just a fashion, just like skirt lengths, a matter of rival orthodoxies. There is not an ultimate economic truth, he writes sarcastically. 
Lord Skidelsky implies that the Great Depression was a failure of laissez-faire capitalism, but as Milton Friedman pointed out, it should be more accurately laid at the door of government monetary manipulation, while the Depression's depth and length were due to the uncertainty created by the interventionist policies. The seesaw battle is not between liberal and conservative economics, but between economic reality and power-hungry political pretension, which embraces, thrives on, and promotes economic ignorance and constantly demonizes capitalism. End quote. Great essay. I, I just uh, couldn't believe I actually saw it sitting there. Now, inflation is the specter that we're looking at here. If, if Bush starts bailing out these companies, it hasn't been decided yet. We're going to be seeing some money printed. And the definition of inflation is extraordinarily important because you hear different terms of inflation used all the time. In fact, I thought I saw another one here in an article uh, that I'd never seen. Oh, yeah, core inflation. That was a new one. That was in the business section of the London Free Press the other day. But really what mostly you talk about is monetary inflation or price inflation. And monetary inflation is an increase in the number of dollars relative to the point in time to which the comparison was made, okay? And monetary deflation is the same thing in reverse, a decrease in the number of dollars. And monetary inflation or deflation can be measured in absolute terms, literally by counting how many more dollars you have on such and such a time versus the previous time, or you can express it as a percentage rate. And the rate of inflation or deflation is a percentage measurement of the increase in the supply of dollars over a given period of time. Rate always relates to time. Now this shouldn't be confused with price inflation or deflation, which may or may not coincide with monetary inflation. For example, even while the supply of money may be artificially increased, say at a rate of 3% a year, which would be monetary inflation, the price of, say, uh, some electronic goods may actually drop during the same period because the production of those items exceeds the rate of inflation and supply exceeds the necessary demand at the time. And similarly, you may see the price of a particular service or commodity inflate even though the money supply has remained relatively stable. And uh, the wiping out of a particular grain crop, say, due to bad weather, could cause the price of that crop rise due to the relative supply and demand. But that kind of inflation doesn't bring down a collapse of an economy. Unless, of course, you have an unfree economy that's built on that one single commodity, uh, which is a danger with Russia, eh, because they're, they're very dependent on oil, and so that one commodity becomes the country's backbone. Unfortunately uh, for the average person, gas and oil have become the new gold, a place where investors put their cash to protect it from monetary inflation, which is why gold and oil are doing quite well these days. In fact, just looking at the, uh, is this the free press here? Yes, it is. Oil's biggest one-day hike, and this was uh, September 23rd, that was two days ago. Uh, oil prices spiked more than $25 a barrel yesterday, the biggest one-day hike, as anxiety over the U.S. government's $700 billion bailout plan, a weak U.S. dollar and expiring crude contracts ignited a dramatic rally. So, you know, they're not, they're not reacting to this bailout exactly as... Uh, as good news, okay? And uh, now, oil and gas price rises, they go up and down for two different reasons. First, you've got a tight supply and demand situation where production's cut off while demand remains unabated, as occurs occasionally during hurricane threats, wars, terrorism, that kind of thing, or because of monetary inflation, which is caused by the government printing money to bail out those hurt by the inevitable consequences of its loose money pol uh, politics and policies.
Inflation is up again, and it's all thanks to the price of gasoline, announces a morning news radio commentator I heard this week. And I saw the same type of headline on the business section of the Free Press. Fuel drives up inflation, which, of course, is exactly backward. Given that scenario number two, monetary inflation is what the story related to. The story reported that because of the bailouts, investors were protecting their money in something real, like oil, not in paper money, which is a euphemism in this electronic age, but it's still the same concept, which is being counterfeited. So in this case, inflation wasn't up because of uh, the price of gasoline. The price of gasoline was up because of monetary inflation. And monetary inflation was up because the U.S. had committed to bailing out firms going under. If you've got $50 chasing 50 liters of gasoline, the price would be a buck a liter. But if suddenly you got $100 chasing 50 liters of gasoline, the price will be two bucks a liter. Nothing with respect to the gas or oil has changed at all in that scenario. What's changed is the supply of money. And that's what Milton Friedman argued is, is what damages nations, whereas uh, Keynes, of course, uh, disagreed with him. Reads the headline of the National Post, September 18th. Here we go. Quote, U.S. gets busy printing money by Jacqueline Thorpe. The U.S. Treasury cranked up its printing press yesterday to help the Federal Reserve extend a U.S. $85 billion loan to American International Group Incorporated, that's AIG, the latest in hundreds and billions of dollars of government assistance that will undoubtedly end up in the lap of U.S. taxpayers. But while anxiety is rising over the U.S. ability to foot the gargantuan bill for the credit crisis, analysts say the U.S. $14 trillion U.S. economy should be able to absorb the shock. The key risk is the threat to inflation posed by the seemingly endless expansion of the government's balance sheet if several more financial institutions go belly up. Clearly, this will widen the deficit by quite a bit. Nariman Beverish, chief economist of Global Insight, said at a presentation in Toronto, but let's be honest, the U.S. is a very, very rich country, end quote. Uh, I don't know what to make of this last comment, actually, because it, while it's true, it almost sounds like it's a justification for, for robbing people of their money. Well, they got a lot of it, so, you know, go ahead and take it. Want some idea of the bailouts? Here's a little summary of just a few of them that showed up in the National Post in the same article. Total tab for rescue, rescues and special loan uh, facilities this year by the U.S. government, that's just this year, and Federal Reserve Board, has passed about $900 billion. Here's how it's breaking down so far. Now, none of this has actually happened yet, but this is the plan. U.S. Uh, $200 billion for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, $300 billion for the Federal Housing Administration to re refinance failing mortgages into new reduced principal loans with federal guarantees, again, a guarantee on a guarantee, U.S. $4 billion in grants to local communities to help them buy and repair homes abandoned due to mor mortgage foreclosures, U.S. $85 billion for AIG, which would give the federal government a 79.9% stake and avoid a bankruptcy filing for the embattled insurer. At least, at least, U.S. $87 billion in repayments to J.P. Morgan Chase and Company for providing financing to underpin trades in with units of bankrupt Lehman Brothers. Oh, my goodness. U.S. $29 billion in financing for J.P. Morgan Chase's government brokered buyout of Bear Stearns and Company in March. And at least $200 billion. Are you adding this all up? This is not... The total, and these are add one to the next, and we're talking billions. I can't, you can't even picture a billion uh, of currently outstanding loans to banks issued through the federal.
long-term auction facility, which was recently expanded, of course, to allow for longer loans of 84 days alongside the previous 28-day credits. In the case of AIG, the U.S. $85 billion is a loan at a punitively high interest rate. While AIG had liabilities close to U.S. $1 trillion at its latest accounting, mainly in the form of benefits due to policyholders and long-term borrowings, it too has assets of about $1 trillion, which should be added to the government's balance sheet. And some of those assets offset some of these liabilities that you're hearing. But some analysts expect global subprime losses to total $650 billion, of which $475 billion will be in the U.S., so there you have it, you know, welcome to the new economy, which of course is the same as the old economy, but that's a story for later in the show. Right now, let's take a quick break for a smile and we'll come back and we'll talk about the nature of a free market and why capitalism is humanizing. We'll hear from Dr. Walter Williams on the other side of this. I'm a, I'm a contemporary man, it's fine. I'm a man of the new millennium, which means I'm living off my wife, really is all that means. Yeah, yeah. That's the new economy right there. Find yourself a good woman, right? You know, she's the breadwinner. I'm no problem. With that. I mean, I kept my maiden name and everything. <laughs> and you know, and, you know, and so I'm not the provider when it comes to finances in our relationship. I'm not the provider. Not even so much as a contributor, really. More like a dependent, actually. the virtues of the free market, and never mind it was with the rise of capitalism that brought a more humane society, that it was with the rise of capitalism that brought better treatment to women, better treatment to racial minorities, better treatment to criminals, better treatment to the handicapped and the insane. There's considerable hostility towards free markets. You know, I was giving this lecture some at, a, at a college, and a feminist stood up and said that capitalism, Western capitalism, is dehumanizing. Uh, dehumanizing. And so I asked that lady, I said, if you are a feminist, where do you want to live? Saudi Arabia or Iran? <laughs> or Africa, any place in Africa, or China? No, you want to live in the United States if you're a feminist. Or if you are a criminal, where do you want to go to jail? Is it Turkey or Mexico? <laughs> you want to go to jail in the United States so you don't miss your HBO. <laughs> now, now, now the, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the, the reason, the essence of why capitalism is humanizing is that it makes it possible for people to become wealthy not by looting and plundering their fellow man as has been historically so that is back in the early periods 1200 800 1400 the way you became rich was through plundering and looting your fellow man enslaving your fellow man but with the rise of capitalism, it made it possible for you to become rich by serving your fellow man, making him happy. 
you know, Bill Gates and Microsoft, how, why is he rich? He made me happy. And a whole lot of other people happy. They just love Windows. Well, I, I, I could argue about that Windows comment there. <laughs> I've, I've got my complaints, but I understand his point. Of course, that's what happens in a capitalist society. People get rich who weren't rich before, didn't even have to have a heritage of, of wealth, and they bring something to the public field that the public never even expected or ever knew about that could, ca that could happen. That's the role of the producer in society. 519-661-3600 the number to call if you want to join us. Listen to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, and we'll be with you from now till noon. So there's no such thing as a free market, eh? That's what Zachary Carabell argued in his National Post editorial we cited in the last quarter of the show there. So if anyone out there is still not quite sure what a free market actually is, I will offer the very precise and clear thoughts of the following writers. Uh, first one being here, Ayn Rand on a free market, who of course would be the leading champion in this, and she writes in a free economy where no man or group of men can use physical coercion against anyone. Economic power can be achieved only by voluntary means, by the voluntary choice and agreement of all those who participate in the process of production and trade. In a free market, all prices, wages, and profits are determined not by the arbitrary whim of the rich or of the poor or by anyone's greed or by anybody's need, but by the law of supply and demand. The mechanism of a free market rec reflects and sums up all the economic choices and decisions made by all the participants. It's a pure democracy, really, in the, in, the, in the raw sense of the word, almost. Men trade their goods or services by mutual consent to mutual advantage, according to their own independent, uncoerced judgment. A man can grow rich only if he's able to offer better values, better products or services at a lower price than others are able to offer. Wealth in a free market is achieved by a free, general, democratic vote by the sales and purchases of every individual who takes part in the economic life of the country. Whenever you buy one product rather than another, you are voting for the success of some manufacturer. And in this type of voting, every man votes only for those matters which he's qualified to judge on his own preferences, on his own interests and needs. No one has the power to decide for others or to substitute their judgment for theirs. No one has the power to appoint himself the voice of the public and to leave the public voice voiceless and disenfranchised. A free market is a continuous process that cannot be held still, an upward process that demands the best, which means the most rational, of every man and rewards him accordingly. While the majority have barely assimilated the value of an automobile, the creative minority introduces the airplane. The majority learn by demonstration. The minority is free to demonstrate. The philosophical objective value, or philosophically objective value of a new product serves as a teacher for those who are willing to exercise their rational faculty, each to the extent of his ability. Those who are unwilling remain unrewarded, as well as those who aspire to more than their ability produces. The stagnant, the irrational, the subjectivist have no power to stop their betters. And it is in this sense that the free market is ruled not by consumers, but by the producers. The most successful ones are those who discover new fields of production, fields which had not even been known to exist, which is one of the reasons I like to feature inventors and science and ideas on this show, or uh, in new applications of technology. 
A given product may not be appreciated at once, particularly if it's too radical an innovation. But barring irrelevant accidents, if it wins, it will win in the, in the long run. It is in this sense that the free market is not ruled by the intellectual criteria of the majority, which prevail only at and for any given moment. The free market is ruled by those who are able to see and plan long range. And the better the mind, the longer the range. All the evils, abuses, and, and inequities popularly ascribed to businessmen and to capitalism were not caused by an unregulated economy of or by a, or by a free market, but by government intervention in the economy, end quote. And then there's Benjamin Rogue, from, uh, who writes in the book uh, called The Freedom Philosophy, published by the Foundation for Economic Education and was dean and professor at, uh, of economics at Wabash College in Indiana. He writes, he says, My economic philosophy is laissez-faire economics. It's not a mixed economy. It is the unmixed economy. I present it as the ideal we should strive for. The most important part of the case for economic freedom is not its vaulted efficiency as the, system f as the best system for organizing resources, not its dramatic success in promoting economic growth, but rather its consistency with certain fundamental moral principles of life itself. The central value in my choice system is individual freedom. By freedom I mean exactly and only freedom from coercion by others. I believe as well that man is imperfect, now and forever. Moreover, man's imperfections are intensified as he acquires the power to coerce others. Power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Here then are two sections of the case for economic freedom as I would construct it. This, of course, is Benjamin Rogue still writing. Major premise, each man should be free to take whatever action he wishes so long as he does not use force or fraud against another. Minor premise, all economic behavior is action, as identified above. Conclusion, each man should be free to take whatever action he wishes in his economic behavior so long as he does not use force or fraud against another. If freedom is an end in itself, as our society has traditionally asserted it to be, then economic freedom is an end in itself, to be valued for itself alone, and not just for its instrumental value in serving other goals. And Clarence B. Carson, in the same book, writes uh, free, free Enterprise, the Key to Prosperity. And he's a Ph.D. from Vanderbilt University, writes that free enterprise is a way of going about meeting our needs and wants by providing for ourselves or by freely entering into transactions with others. The opposite of free enterprise is hampered, restricted, controlled, or prohibited enterprise. The enterprise itself must be conducted in an orderly fashion within the framework of rules. But if the rules inhibit entry or hamper activity, they become restrictions on free enterprise. It is clear enough, for example, that traffic at an intersection must be regulated in its flow but that reasonable rules promote rather than inhibit the effective use of the street. On the other hand, if a city made a rule that taxi cabs were to be limited to those presently in operation, it would be equally clear that enterprise was being hampered. <laughs> what a ridiculous example. Eh? What municipality would be so crazy as to do <coughs> such a thing? And he writes, Meliorism is the view that what is wrong with free enterprise can be corrected by government intervention. There's much evidence to show that it is government activity, not free enterprise, which is responsible for the so-called business cycle. The cyclical change from prosperity to depression, recession to prosperity can be correlated with increases and decreases in the supply of money. 
Dramatic increases in the money supply result in expansive business activity and tend to create a boom atmosphere. When the supply of money is decreased or stabilized, activity slows and recessions follow. If there is a severe deflation, such as the one that followed the stock market crash in 1929, a deep depression can be the result. In precise terms, the cycles result from credit expansions and contractions. The villain of the piece is the government manipulation of the money supply by way of the Federal Reserve System. The cure lies not in government intervention to hamper enterprise, but in a sound money that cannot be manipulated. I discuss this very issue, end quote, that's the end of that one. And I discussed this very issue on our money show almost about a, a year ago on October uh, 18th show. If you want to check it, by, uh, by the way, uh, www.justrightmedia.org is where you can get all the uh, archive shows of Just Right, and that is one of them. And uh, we think we were talking then about whether money was the root of all evil, and we also talked about inflation on that show as well. Now, coming up next... Uh, this clip, before we go into this next break and have a little joke on the other side of it, but first, you're going to be hearing from uh, a well-known associate of Ayn Rand. And that's Dr. Leonard Peikoff, who was speaking, in this case, at the University of Toronto way back in 1984. And uh, they were talking about, of course, socialism and capitalism, but this is just an excerpt from that, uh, talking about the whole concept of laissez-faire and what it means. And we come back on the other side... Um, we'll continue and come back around to where we started. Where are we going from here? And what is the final expectation? We'll be coming back right after. Use your trouble as a club over your neighbor's head. You have to recognize that other men have a right to exist too. That your suffering does not make them your slave. In other words, this is not the function of the government. What is? We hold the government's function is to protect each individual precisely from being sacrificed by others or to others, to protect the independence of each man's mind, in other words, to protect his individual rights and leave every man free to act on his own judgment and for his own profit. And this is exactly what capitalism is. And I want to stress this. Capitalism is not what we have in the West today. I'm talking about let's say fair capitalism. In other words, the complete separation of state and economics. Not government by pressure groups, not government favors for any group, whether businessmen, labor, farmers, or consumers. Not tariff protection, nor subsidies, nor franchises, nor any kind of handouts or welfare functions. I'm speaking of government as an impartial arbiter to prevent citizens from violating individual rights and otherwise hands off, which is what laissez-faire means. Actually, uh, I'm going home in a couple of weeks to Nova Scotia. Pretty excited. Turns out uh, one more of my friends uh, just qualified for unemployment insurance. <laughs> I'm going to be in the parade. <laughs> Can you imagine if they uh, did ads for social assistance programs? Just like a couple of maritimers out in the middle of the ocean somewhere. Be like, oh, hey, you're me. <laughs> By Jesus. I'm you! <laughs> what the hell is in this whiskey? <laughs> and where do we get the money for this new dory? <laughs> Simple, me friend. We put our money to work for us. <laughs> what did we do? We invested it. 
where did we get it? Well, what we did was, was we cast in all our empties. And we took that money down and bought ourselves a new gun. We took that new gun down to our place of employment and waved it around for a couple of hours. While the old bastard lost so many customers, he had to lay us off. And that's what we qualified for. You mean, that's right, Freedom 25. Freedom 25. It works, so you don't have to. Freedom 25, how'd you like that one, eh? Uh, another, I guess what you could call it, uh, welfare state joke, I suppose. So where to from here? Uh, where do we go from here? Of course, tomorrow night uh, you're, there's going to be the big meeting among the leaders of the two parties vying for the presidency in the states, including the current President George Bush, and they're all going to try and get together and perhaps convince us that the bailout is necessary. Which, well, it may be, despite everything I've said at this point, because... Uh, there are certainly interesting arguments, and you're going to hear some of them here, you know. Uh, one of them is uh, Terrence Corcoran, of course, again. He says he, he's a little upset about everybody using this word, the, the D word, the Great Depression. And he writes in the National Post, September 16th, on the front page, he said, The Great Depression, massive in scale and scope, dug a deep trench through U.S. economic statistics of the 1930s, numbers so big that today's comparisons have little meaning or relevance, which is kind of hard to believe given the, the numbers we were just looking at. He writes that industrial production fell 50% between 1929 and 1932, prices fell 20%, real incomes of Americans fell 35%, and the stock market, get this, plunged 75%. Nothing remotely near this kind of meltdown is on the horizon, at least thinks Corcoran. The United States, would act, which actually grew 3.3% in the second quarter that ended two months ago, has yet to show meaningful signs of recession. And in another editorial we see in the National Post on the 18th, uh, there's the heading, heading, don't panic just yet, <laughs> just yet, and they write that the simple explanation for this catastrophe is this. It's a bad idea to lend hundreds of billions of dollars to people who have little, if any, chance of paying it back. <laughs> yeah, there's a direct consequence of altruism and greed, how they work together. Not even the most sophisticated financial minds on the planet can escape the market's retribution when they break one of the cardinal rules about lending money, they write. Of course, that's another way of saying you can't avoid Mother Nature or you can't avoid reality. You know, that money we use really represents something real. It's not just an abstract uh, piece of paper in your pocket. At least it's not supposed to be, but it is when they start printing it willy-nilly, and that's, that's the danger. Bush-era deregulation has taken much of the blame for the crisis from the American press, uh, writes um, the uh, National Post editorial. There is more than one source of these troubles and more than enough blame to go around. But this is not so far another Great Depression. On Black Monday, October 28, 1929, the unofficial start of the Depression, the New York Stock Exchange lost 13% of its value on a single day, another 12% on the following day. And the Dow Jones Industrial Average did not recover its 1929 levels until 1954. By the way, just as an aside, I was watching a recount of... Uh, Milton Friedman's description of how the, how the Great Depression started with the Bank of the United States, which is a complex story. But even that bank, which went under, over time, 
uh, recovered 92% of its value, which is amazing. And that's in the worst of the Depression. So economies do recover. It's just that how slowly or quickly does it recover? Because generally what happens is the more the government helps, the longer the recovery will take. David Frum writes in the National Post on the 20th that the meltdown message is that the party is over. What should a free market believer think about the plan for a government bailout in the U.S. mortgage market, he asks? Well, he says try this analogy. You've got a white carpet in your upstairs hall. The normal rule is that nobody can wear shoes on the carpet. But the house is on fire and the baby is upstairs. Will you tell the arriving fire department to wait and kick their boots off before dousing the flames? The object of these financial bailouts is not to rescue the shareholders and employees of any one single firm. The object of this bailout is to pre prevent bad debts and one financial firm from destroying credit throughout the entire U.S. and global economy. Federal Chairman Ben Bernanke is one of America's leading academic experts on the Great Depression. At, dinner, at a dinner in honor of Milton Friedman's 90th birthday in 2002, Bernanke finished his tribute to the great monetarist with his acknowledgment of Friedman's thesis that the Great Depression was caused by central bank failure. Quote, let me end my talk by abusing slightly my status as an official of the Federal Reserve. I would say to Milton and Anna, colleague Anna Schwartz is referring to, regarding the Great Depression, you're right, we did it. We're very sorry. But thanks to you, we won't do it again, end quote. We can hope that this bailout may prove less costly to the taxpayer than the big scary numbers that the headlines suggest. The headlines describe only one side of the ledger. The net cost may be much smaller, but there is now very little hope for the renewal of the Bush tax cuts. And in another uh, editorial, again by Terrence Corcoran on the 20th, that's the same day, Regulatory Train Wreck reads the headline. And in referring to that other side of the ledger, uh, he writes, quote, But if the vast majority of these assets have value over time, then why does U.S. accounting policy force banks and other institutions to write these same mortgage assets and their associated securitization products down to near zero? If the government can sit on mortgages and wait for payment over the long term, why can't banks? It's a question that Treasury Secretary Harry Paulson, or Henry Paulson failed to answer. The accounting rules are just one part of the massive global regulatory train wreck that is, that is at the heart of Wall Street's troubles. This is not a free markets versus bailouts issue, as CNN likes to put it, or a crisis of capitalism, or as Barack Obama and John McCain tell the story, a giant market failure the product of rampant greed or corruption on Wall Street and in financial markets all over the world. As occasional contributor Pierre Lemieux puts it in a posting on FP Comment Online, what we are witnessing is a, quote, crisis of global statism, a pile-up of several decades of expanding regulation and state control that is battering the financial markets. All undermine capitalism's ability to adjust and change, end quote. In fact, they end capitalism. Capitalism doesn't exist when you've got those regulations there. That's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's the whole concept. And finally, you know, everybody's trying to say, well, don't worry, you know, be happy, it's okay. George Jonas strikes a, a cautionary note, and he writes uh, on September 18th, again in the National Post, he, he's talking about a conversation he had with a wealthy friend of his. And Jonas quotes his friend in his editorial as saying, quote, there's no old economy, there's the economy. The economy isn't old, and it isn't new. 
it is and always has been and will forever be. Whoever told you this nonsense about old and new? You did, replies Jonas to his friend. And his friend replies to him, he says, And I was wrong. We all thought this time it would be different. Yes, writes Jonas, this time it's different was the phrase. Depression went out with the dodo bird. It was just a grim tale from another world, a world before Roosevelt, a world before the New Deal. It was the ghost of Christmas past, the age before social insurance, progressive taxation, safety nets, government planning, state leadership and intervention, before the mixed economy. Why well, do you like that? He gets it right. In short, before we did the things we did in order to solve the problem we solved a long time ago. Today's capitalism isn't your father's capitalism. There are business cycles, sure. There are waves, big waves, winter gales, there are icebergs. Icebergs? Did somebody say icebergs? What's our unsinkable ship's name again? T-I-T-A-N-I-C, is it? <laughs> As I am writing this, says Jonas, Lehman Brothers has gone belly up. Merrill Lynch is about to be absorbed by the Bank of America at a price that looks uh, better t today than it may be tomorrow. Wall Street types keep explaining why this is different from 1929, while the Bank of England and the European Central Bank are infusing some $60 billion into the circulatory systems of financial markets. Fingers are crossed. For the time being, the patient is breathing on its own. And that's what uh, Mr. Jonas offers us there. So I guess the answer, or the, the situation right now, is keep your fingers crossed. Uh, what can we say? I'm looking here in the in the paper again at the Free Press. Uh, don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but the uh, article here suggests that the rescue plan is a tough sell. And uh, you know, there's a lot of bipartisan skepticism. They say that it's that's greeting uh, Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson and uh, Federal Chairperson Ben Bernanke on Capitol Hill. Not everybody's in favor of it. And of course, one of the big questions being asked is uh, why should the captains of finance who caused the mess in the first place be rescued while Americans who are losing their homes or seeing the value of them tumble be left footing the bill. And says Senator Jim Bunning of uh, Republican Kentucky, it's financial socialism and it's un-American. You know, so there you go. And what do they have here in uh, well, this bailout other situation here? You can see too now that some of the other parties are in, in trying to slow this bailout are trying to add more government regulations to it. I couldn't believe it. The Democrats want more added to the package. Okay, they want judges to be able to rewrite mortgages and lower bankrupt homeowners' monthly payments and extend the credit period and all this kind of stuff. Which, uh, would you want to lend money to anybody if after you sign the contract, you know what the term is, and uh, if, you know, if they get into trouble, somebody can just change the whole deal on you, and you, you can't do anything about it? What kind of uh, economy is that? Who's going to trust an economy in which trust is not considered a value? And I think that's the big problem with the economy. I can't give you any predictions. I don't know. Are we heading into a depression? Who knows? Maybe next week we'll all be sitting here wondering what we're going to use for money. <laughs> but that's it for today. Next week, I hope you'll join us again as we uh, continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, please be right. Stay right. Do right. Act right and think right. Take care. We'll see you then. Fade into color Color into black and white Under the bedclothes you guys are nice. I got to start with a weird phone call I got this week. My agent called me to uh, suggest that I audition to be the host of a pro-smoking videotape. To, uh, yeah, 
I, seriously, he said, you're clean cut, you could sell cigarettes. And uh, it's, I guess it's to show that like farmers need the subsidies and it, smoking creates a lot of jobs. And I turned it down and he called me and said, well, at least, you know, think about it overnight because it pays 40,000 bucks. Yeah, dude, 40 grand, I'll do a pro crack spot. Are you kidding me? It's, you know, like, somebody's actually going to try and pretend smoking is healthy. I'll take all that kind of negative crap, you know, just... You know, like some anti-safe sex thing, you know? Oh, rubber schmubber, stick it in! You know, big cheer there at the end, and you know... I, hey, I don't, I'll do like a thing in favor of drunk driving. You want to drive drunk? Buy yourself a Winnebago. That's right. You can't be arrested for drunk driving when you're already home. Thank you. Yeah, that's... Thank you. Yeah, that's...